So great to be with you. I was here a few months ago. I preached my heart out on prayer, and I was talking to somebody um, last time I was around the church, and they were saying, man, that, that message on prayer was so meaningful to me. And I, I said, well, what was so meaningful? Was it talking about dwelling in the presence of Jesus? Was it talking about position and posture? And he says, no, what most impressed me was that you called your wife a spicy margarita in front of the whole church. So if that was a big deal for you, I brought my spicy margarita with me today. Um, she is here with me. Yeah, let's go. Um, for those of you I don't know, my name is Mike Reinsel. I'm the executive pastor at our church. And I just want to say tonight that this is a great Sunday to be in church. It's a great Sunday to be in church, whether this is your first time or whether you are here every time, because we are in the middle of a series called X Multiply. Let me hear you say X Multiply. X Multiply is a series where we are rolling out a 10-year vision for our church. As we look out 10 years toward the year 2033 and the 2,000-year anniversary of the Great Commission, and Jesus, as the last thing he said before going up to heaven, said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so what if, what if the last thing that Jesus said before he went to heaven is the first thing that he's going to ask you and ask me when we get to heaven? And so for the last four weeks, we've been rolling out four different initiatives of these 10 different initiatives. In week one, we talked about being a nonstop house of prayer, that every week, that every month of every week, that every day we would be people of prayer, that we would be creating environments for individuals, for groups, for us corporately to pray, and that we would be leaning into prayer and serving out of prayer, that we would be a house of prayer and a people of prayer. In week two, we talked about making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, a multiplying discipleship movement, and that over the next 10 years, we want 10,000 people from our church to be equipped and trained and empowered to go out and make disciples. In week three, we talked about sharing the gospel. And I remember Pastor Joey talking about us being crazy farmers who literally go and sow the seeds of the gospel relentlessly everywhere we go. And we just wait and see how God's going to grow that up. And then last week, Pastor Joe talked about it. Joey just preached an amazing message on baptism. If you weren't here, I, I, I'm with Joe. You ought to go back and listen to it because it was an amazing message. In our Milton campus, Sean Curry, our student pastor, preached an amazing message. And we had two baptismals there. You had one here. And uh, Sean, at the end of his message, just said, hey, here is water. What keeps you from being baptized? And as Joe said, between our two campuses, we had 33 people step into the baptismal waters and make a public profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so today, church, today we get to talk about the fifth of our 10 initiatives. And our focus today will be on being people of compassion, on being a church who exemplifies compassion. And this is a part of the vision that in, invites us into serving who Jesus called the least of these. 
And I'm going to give you a little warning on the front end of this message. This isn't a feel-good message. This is a deep message. It's a heavy, weighty message. But it's a really, really good message because Jesus clearly tells us that we are to serve the least of these. And I'm not talking about just being on the dream team and serving coffee or greeting people. And don't get it twisted. I am really, really glad that you are serving in that way. But that type of serving is called hospitality. And this is different. What we are talking about today is different. And what I'm talking about here is serving at a deeper level and serving people who are mostly different than you and me. People who look different, who talk different, who sound different, who smell different, who have different educational and socioeconomic backgrounds, people who live in different neighborhoods, people who are considerably different than the majority of us in this room. The poor, the widow, the orphan, the trafficked, the prisoner, and the unborn, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the forgotten, the forsaken, the invisible, the disenfranchised, the people that the rest of the world ignores, but the people that Jesus called the least of these and called you and me to serve. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in the Word and see what God has for us in that. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the ways that you are shaping us into the Imago Dei, into the image of God. I thank you that you love us enough to meet us where we are and to lead us to a place that's deeper, that's better. I thank you that you are creating in us a desire for holiness or sanctification and that you are using life circumstances and the people of life to allow us to step into that. And Father, I just pray that tonight your word would come alive for us, that we would see through God's eyes, that we would hear through God's ears, that we would have hearts broken for the things and the people that break your heart, and that we would have the courage and the willingness to jump in. And I pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus and the people of God said, amen. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to hold those up. That is my favorite thing about Elevated City Church. When we hold up our Bibles, the whole room is full of Bibles. We did that in the Milton campus today, and there were a half a dozen Bibles. I mean, I was embarrassed for us. <laughs> so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Matthew 25. That's where we're going to be the majority of the time today. And this story is the last of the parables in Matthew's Gospel. And it was a response to the question that his disciples were asking Jesus one chapter earlier in Matthew 24, 3, as they sat together the night before Jesus' arrest and subsequent death. And here's what the Bible says. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now that's really interesting to me because the disciples have pulled Jesus off to the side. They are meeting with him privately and I, I kind of wonder why are they meeting with him privately? Are they just wondering and they want a special audience? Are they embarrassed to ask the question? I'm not really sure but then in, uh, in chapter five, 25 Jesus proceeds to tell three stories, three parables that I think begin 
to answer that question. These are stories of the final judgment. They're not warm and fuzzy. I told you this isn't going to be a warm and fuzzy message. They aren't warm and fuzzy stories. They are stories that answer the questions that the disciples were asking. What will the end look like? Now, I admittedly had to do some additional study for this message. Anytime I'm communicating a message, I always study a lot. I study scripture. But I had to study about sheep and goats for this message because I'm a Detroit city boy, and we don't have a lot of sheep and goats. And so when I left for college at 18, I got to tell you that I had never seen a live sheep or a live goat. But in my study, I learned that sheep and goats are often herded together. And because they're living together and living life together and getting dirty together, from afar, it's really difficult to distinguish between the sheep and the goats. I was recently in Israel with my wife and a group of people And as you're driving through the countryside, there are lots of open fields and lots of uh, sheep and goats and cattle. And oftentimes I would turn to Christina and I would say, are are those sheep or are those goats? I can't tell, but they were were just all together. And the reality is, is that they spend their entire day together. And the sheep and the goats are only separated at the end of the day by the shepherd that knows them well enough to separate them. He knows them well enough to tell them apart and to separate the sheep from the goats. And Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd, and I'll be able to tell them apart. Jesus says in verse 31 that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will come in glory and sit on his glorious throne. And he says as the good shepherd that he will have no problem distinguishing between the sheep, and the goats. And he says, there will be a day when I will separate them. I will separate them well, and I will separate them rightly. There won't be any confusion. There won't be any goats saying, hey, shouldn't I be with the group of sheep? Jesus is the good shepherd, and Jesus knows how to separate the sheep from the goats. And then Jesus goes on and he just kind of metaphorically describes what that final judgment will look like. He says the sheep will be on the right and the goats will be on the left. The sheep on the right will inherit the kingdom of God and the goats on the left, not so much. So if you came in this morning and you, or this evening and you sat on the left side of the church, I'm really sorry for you. Um, that was a really bad choice coming in today. And if uh, I can't see you real well because of the lights, if you want to just make your way over with the sheep on the right side, you can go ahead and do that while I'm finishing the message. But listen to the language that Jesus uses in verse 34. He says, then the king will say to those on his right, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. At the beginning of time, at the foundation of the world, Jesus uses the word come. It's invitational. God deeply wants us to be in the group of sheep. He doesn't want us to be over with the goats. And he invites us into that group. He invites us to inherit the kingdom of God. It's a free invitation. 
It's a no-cost inheritance, and because of his death, we have life. That's the gospel. But let me be clear. He also says, I want you to inherit the kingdom, but you can't feed enough poor. You can't take in enough orphans. You can't rescue enough trafficked women to get into heaven. You inherit the kingdom because of my death, my resurrection, what I did. You can't serve enough of the least of these to get into heaven. It's really important that we know that we cannot serve enough of the least of these to get into heaven. But, but, how you treat them is evidence of the faith that saved you. And what Jesus is saying is that what we do for the least of these is like doing directly for Jesus. In verse 40, he says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the, one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, what I interpret in that is that God's heart is so closely tied to the poor. God's heart is so closely tied to the vulnerable and the marginalized and the forgotten and the forsaken that he views a move against them as a move against himself. And he views all of this so closely that if you were to serve him, if you were to serve them, you're actually serving him. And serving the least of these is not just something that we are called to do. It's someone that we are. And so this evening we get to look at the fifth part of that X multiply vision, our 10-year vision for our church. And I just want to read it together as a church, if we can put it up on the back screen. A commitment to serve the poor, the prisoner, and the orphan. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, 11, the poor you will always have with you. James said in James 1, 27, true religion is caring for widows and orphans. And Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, whatever you have done for the prisoner, you have done for me. And church, it will be impossible for us to elevate the name of Jesus without caring for the least of these. Let me say that again. It will be impossible for us to elevate the name of Jesus without caring for the least of these. And so over the next 10 years, we as a church will give a million dollars away. We will invest a million dollars to serve the poor, the orphan, the unborn, and the widow. We will partner to see a thousand women and girls set free from trafficking in Jesus' name. We will see foster homes opened and orphans adopted and partner to end the generational cycles of poverty in Clarkston. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Now, it's likely that when you look at this particular initiative that you come with life experiences that speak into how you feel about these groups of people. Things you've heard, things you've seen, things you've read about, things people have talked to you about that have shaped how you feel about serving the people that Jesus refers to as the least of these and while I doubt that there are many of us in this room who would turn a blind eye or a deaf ear toward serving the least of these, many Christians have simply never been told 
that to be a Christian will cost you something. Let me say that again. Many of us as Christians have simply never been told that to be a Christian is going to cost us something. Many of us were simply sold a, a version of salvation, a false gospel that has led us to believe that it won't cost us anything. A version that permits us to essentially continue on the same as we were before we knew Jesus, but for having a free pass to heaven or get out of hell free card. But that's not what Jesus says. And you won't find that in this Bible. You see, God's will isn't about getting him on our agenda. It's about getting us on his agenda. And his agenda is serving the least of these. His agenda is investing in the lost, the forgotten, the forsaken, the marginalized with our time, yes. With our relationships, of course. With our talents, without a doubt. And with our money, yep. Lester Roloff says, churches become poor if they become rich and care not for the poor. And so we're going to invest as a church a million dollars over the next 10 years in serving the people that Jesus cared deeply about. And here's the really good news. The money to do that is already here in this room. It's already here in this room. It just happens to be in your pockets instead of the pockets of the poor who need it. For those of us who claim to follow Jesus, once you surrender your life to Jesus, you are a new creation. And as a new creation, we are called to live lives that cost us something. And no, make no mistake that loving the least of these is going to cost you something. If you came in here today and you think it's not going to cost you something, you are wrong. It might be your time. It might be your money, it might be your comfort, it might be all of those things, it might be a whole lot more than that, but that's what God calls us into. Think about it for a second. It's all through this book. The shepherds, the shepherds gave up their time, the wise men gave up their gifts, Joseph gave his lifelong support, Mary gave up her reputation, the disciples gave up careers and security, Lydia gave up her house, Paul gave up his status, and Jesus, Jesus gave up his life. But the reality is that as people living in Milton and Alpharetta, in Sandy Springs, we're being programmed to focus on us. Nearly everything in our culture and in our world today tells us that it's all about me. Social media, advertising, the workplace, our schools, everything around us is trying to convince us of the lie that life is about me. And that being successful means the perfection of project self. But as the great theologian Toby Keith says, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh me, oh my. Joey, that was for you. <laughs> but church, church, we are programmed to think about us. 
we are programmed to accomplish and acquire and accumulate. Let me say that again. We are programmed to accomplish and acquire and accumulate. And while running after some level of those things might not be inherently bad, if we are running after them for us instead of for the kingdom of God, those things, those things, if we aren't careful, can cause us to completely lose sight of the people that Jesus cared most about. And church, it can literally cause us to lose our soul. Now I know that for many of you, you simply aren't aware or are at least under aware of the depth and breadth of the problem and the need. And I don't want to overwhelm you with a bunch of data and statistics, but I want to give you some context this evening because um, th there are needs around us in this initiative of serving the least of these that most of us probably are unaware of. So if we look at poverty, the national poverty rate is 11.5%. 37.9 million people live in poverty in the U.S. The individual poverty rate is just under $14,000 of income a year. For a family of four, that's just under $28,000 a year. And in Clarkston, in Clarkston, where Hillary and so many people serve, the most ethnically diverse square mile in the U.S., 31 people are living, 31% of the people are living below the poverty line. That can't stay that way. 391,000 kids are in foster care nationally. 11,000 plus of those are in the state of Georgia. And coming out of foster care today, 50% find themselves unemployed, pregnant, or homeless within one year of the time that they left foster care. And we have to do something about that. The U.S. leads the world in locking people up. About 1.2 million people are currently incarcerated in state and federal prisons. But prison ministry changes that. Prison ministry lowers the national recidivism rate. Recidivism is just basically when someone gets out of prison, if they commit another crime, they're back in prison. That's recidivism. Prison ministry, going into prison, sharing the gospel, pouring into those lives, lowers that recidivism rate from 66% to under 7%. There are 27.6 million, million victims of trafficking worldwide at any given time. People of all ages, genders, backgrounds, nationalities, no one is immune, who are being coerced into illegal sex and labor, over a million of those victims of trafficking live right here in the United States of America. And finally, with the unborn, 45% of all pregnancies are unplanned, and 40% of unplanned pregnancies end in abortion. Now, church, as you see these stats tonight, 
I know that there are likely a multitude of reactions to that. Maybe some of you have just lived in a bubble and you had no idea about the breadth and the depth of the need around us. Maybe you see these stats and you think they're so big and so systemic that there is nothing that little old you could do to change that. Maybe you've given to the church or you say, I pay my taxes and it's the church's responsibility or it's the government's responsibility. And maybe, just maybe if you're really honest, you see these people, the least of these, as responsible for the place that they find themselves. And you believe that the decisions that they made got them where they are and that the situation they're in is their fault. And that they deserve exactly what they get. Now that does not sound like a biblically aligned mindset. But that's the mindset of a lot of people. Even of people that call themselves followers of Jesus. But whatever your perspective was coming in here today regarding serving the least of these. My hope. My prayer. Is simply that God will break our hearts today. For the people and the things that Jesus was broken for. That God will burden you with a strong conviction of compassion for his people and that you will see doing for the least of these as doing for him. That God will give you the obedience to step in and to express the compassion that Jesus did and that you would have the courage to walk into the mess that we call humanity. And that through you serving those who are often the most inconvenient and sometimes uncomfortable people to serve, that God will change you, that God will change them, and that God will change his kingdom. You see, I believe that serving the least of these is tri-transformational. That's a term I made up, so you can't find it in the dictionary. If you Google it, you probably won't find it anywhere. That's my term. But what that means is that when we serve the least of these, they are transformed. We are transformed, and the kingdom of God is transformed. Try transformational. So let's talk for a few minutes about being people of compassion. Depending on your translation of the Bible... The word compassion appears in the Bible 144 times. The Greek word usually translated compassion is called splankna. And that's different from how we define compassion. Our English translation gives us um, the image that our heart or our head is affected. But it was so much more than that in the Bible. And if you go back to the original Greek, it describes the compassion that Jesus had as splankna, literally meaning that our innards, our guts, our intestines are turned inside out. When the Bible tells us that Jesus had compassion, it meant that he hid an inner gut wrenching within his insides for the people that he cared most about, for the broken and for the hurting and for the vulnerable. So what if the church... Or let me bring it down here. What if our church had a gut-wrenching reaction to the broken and to the hurting? And I'm not just talking about being sympathetic, but actually expressing empathy. 
I had a conversation this week. I had coffee with a friend of mine, and during coffee, he said, you know, I'm, I'm just really broken by all that's happening in Israel and just have so much empathy for the Jewish people. And I said, well, Brian, tell me more about that. And he went to describe what he was feeling, and I said, Brian, I think what you're describing is sympathy. Brene Brown has a great description of the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy means someone is trapped in a 10-foot deep, dark hole. And we look down in the hole and we say, wow, bummer. Really looks dark in there. Sad that you're down there. Hope you have a good day. That's sympathy. Empathy means we go get a ladder and we climb down into the hole and we hug them and we embrace them and we walk alongside of them and we help them climb out of the hole. Church, we should be empathetic people. Our responsibility to care for the poor and work for justice is mentioned in the Bible over 300 times. And Jesus, Jesus had a consuming passion for the people that he referred to as the least of these. The orphan, the prisoner, the poor, the trafficked, and the unborn. And church, we see it all through Scripture. I want to note a few of them in Psalm 69. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. In Matthew 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Splunkna on them. And he healed their sick. In Psalm 68, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. James 1.27, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And I love this one, Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Remember I said earlier, what we do for the least of these, we do for him. That's what the Bible tells us. And he will repay him for his deed. You see, church, God makes that promise. When we serve the least of these, we will be rewarded. It might not be on this earth. It might be in the kingdom. But we will be rewarded. And so if Jesus modeled it, and if the Bible talks about it so much, why is compassion so uncommon today? Even for people who say that they are following Jesus, this often isn't central to who we are and to what we do. But why? Why isn't bold, sacrificial, Christ-like love of the least of these happening? Why is it so rare even among Christians? Church, I think it's because we've been lulled to sleep by lives of comfort and distraction. Like the noise machines that sit in our bedside that lull us to sleep at night, we are often numb to the poor and to the needs of the people around us. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the third part of our 10-year vision, that we want to go out and be those crazy farmers who are sharing the gospel, 
last night, all day yesterday, up at our Milton campus. We had 115 students and a bunch of adult volunteers that just went out into the community in Alpharetta, at Wills Park, in downtown Crabapple. And they went to 11 or 1,200 houses and just shared the gospel boldly and courageously, went door to door, met people out in parks and shared the gospel. They had bold gospel conversations. And we need to be those kinds of crazy farmers who are just sowing seeds and watching what God does with the seeds that we sow, watching how he grows up from the seeds of the gospel that we are planting wherever we can. And can I just say that I think the church or that the gospel is holistic? It's not that we preach the words of the gospel and can ignore or get a pass on meeting the deep human needs of those around us, especially the poor. And likewise, I, I don't think we can just meet the physical needs of the suffering without verbally sharing the promise of the gospel that gives us eternal life. The promise that there is a God and that he is good. That he created everything around us. He created it good and he desires good for us. There is a God and he is good. But there is a problem and it's sin. It's your sin. It's my sin. But there is a solution. There is hope. And his name is Jesus. And embracing that hope. Embracing that hope requires our surrender. You see, church, what Jesus brought to the least of these, to those that he cared deeply for, and what he modeled for us to bring was a holistic gospel. It was living out a gospel that simultaneously brings both word and deed into the lives of the broken and the hurting and the vulnerable and the marginalized and the disenfranchised, the people that the rest of the world has forgotten about. Six years ago, I was serving in a ministry called Mission Hope. Mission Hope would go into very remote, isolated villages. We were working in four different countries, and we would go down rivers, and we would go to places that nobody goes because it's too expensive, it's too inconvenient, it's too dangerous, whatever the reason. People didn't go where we went, but we would go there, and we would build relationships with the poor, and we would invest in the poor, and we would provide a pathway that they could move from the various crises of life and the poverty that they found themselves in to a place of thriving and sustainability. About a year after I started with Mission Hope, we moved our offices down to a place called City of Refuge. City of Refuge sits in Vine City in downtown Atlanta. It's the worst zip code for every negative statistic you can imagine. Crime, drug use, human trafficking, low graduation rates, pick a negative statistic and City of Refuge was serving in that geography in Vine City. Bruce Deal, the founder of City of Refuge said, this just can't continue to happen. We can't continue to allow the poor to suffer as they're suffering. 
And so Bruce found a 210,000 square foot abandoned warehouse and began to renovate it and turn it into this nonstop transformational hub in the hood. In the worst part of the city of Atlanta, there was hope. There was promise of moving from crisis to thriving and the promise of a relationship with Jesus. After being there at City of Refuge and meeting Bruce, he began to cast a vision for replicating the model of what is City of Refuge in downtown Atlanta. He talked about multiplying it around the different cities around the country. And as Christine and I prayed about that and prayed with Bruce, it was pretty clear that God wanted us to move to Dallas and to launch a version of what City of Refuge is in Atlanta in Dallas, Texas. And so we sold our house. We packed up the moving van. We kissed our three adult kids and our two grandkids goodbye. And we headed toward Dallas. It was a Genesis 12-1 call. Leave your family, your countryside, and your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. On my third day in Dallas, a friend of mine invited me to a ministry called Men of Nehemiah to a prayer service that they have once a week. Men of Nehemiah serves the broken of the broken. I mean, these guys have been through every rehab. They have taken every drug. They have lived behind every dumpster. They have shot up. They have lived in trap houses and crack houses and places you and I could never imagine even walking into. And they show up on the doorstep of Men of Nehemiah broken and hopeless, saying, is there something more than what we have today? And Men and Nehemiah takes them in, cleans them up, gives them an opportunity, shares the promise of the gospel, and then releases them to go multiply. Well, I went on my third day there to this prayer gathering, and there were 80 guys in the room. Every one of those 80 guys looked considerably different than this guy. I was the only one in the room without a tattoo. And I made my way around the room. I made conversation with the guys I was walking around and talking with. But I got to confess that this was an environment that was way, way, way outside my comfort zone. Even with a guy that's been in ministry for a long time, I was uncomfortable. And then I met John. John Bress is six foot six. He's tatted up head to toe. His head is shaved. This dude is scary. And I stood before John intimidated, uncomfortable, and if I'm honest, a little bit scared. And John looked at me after talking for a while and he said, dude, I would really appreciate you doing something for me. I'm writing this devotional that I hope will reach into the lives of the men here and men that will be here. And I would love for you to read it and tell me what you think. Well, when a six foot six tatted up dude asks you to do something, the only answer is yes, sir, I would be glad to. <laughs> and so I took that wad of papers that he gave me and I stuck them in my back pocket and I went home that night and had dinner with my wife Christina and at the end of dinner I was sitting on our sofa 
third day in Dallas. She was sitting in the chair across the way. And I started to read John Bress's devotional. The first seven or eight pages were his life story of being molested beginning at three, of having parents who were in and out of rehab, drug and alcohol rehab, and in and out of jails and prisons, of John being in and out of jails and prisons, of drugs that he had taken that I have never even heard of, of homelessness, of crack houses, of flop houses, terms that I had never heard of, and I sat on my sofa my third night in Dallas, Texas, and I wept. I was literally crying, and my wife, with all the compassion she could muster, looked at me and said, what in the world is wrong with you? And I said, nothing's wrong with me, but what is wrong is that any man, woman, or child should have to deal with what my friend John has dealt with. But what is really, really right is John had some Jesus followers who stepped into his life, who walked alongside the uncomfortable place of his life, who told him about Jesus, who led him to give his life, to surrender his life to Jesus. And what is really, really right is that John is a transformed man. Well, John and I became fast friends. We would laugh together, cry together, worship together. We worked and we played together. From time to time, John would come over to our house. Every now and then, we would go over to his house. Not so often. It was different than ours. And sometimes, we would go out to eat for dinner. Now, we didn't do that very often because it was always a public setting, and my friend John had a very prolific four-letter vocabulary that he expressed prolifically in restaurants, and I will leave it at that. Both of us were drawn to each other, and in a way, both of us envied each other. Me, John, envied my success. He envied my financial security, my safety, my beautiful wife, my family. And with John, I envied John's vulnerability, his transparency, his honesty, his rawness. But what I envied most of John is John's daily desperate dependence on God. You see, I was a business guy. My life was buttoned up. I had my stuff together. I'd made plenty of money. I was using God as a backstop when I ran short of myself. But John, because of the brokenness of his life, had a daily desperate dependence on God that I so yearn for. Now today, I would tell you that John is one of my dearest friends, and I really hope that John would say the same thing about me. And you might never find two guys who were so different who came together to the same place and became friends. For a long time, John and I would meet and get to know each other better. And when we were moving back here to Atlanta the day before we moved, 
I told John, we need to get together, and so we agreed to meet at the IHOP. He was working a night job and getting off at 6, and I was always early up in the morning. And so we agreed to meet at the local IHOP. And I came in, asked the hostess if anyone was waiting. She said no. She sat me down in a corner booth. And I sat there for about 20 minutes, and John didn't show up. And so I texted him. I'm like, dude, where are you? And he said, well, I'm right here at the IHOP where we agreed to meet in a corner booth. And so I walked from this corner of the restaurant all the way around to the other corner of the restaurant. And there was my friend John talking it up with the hostess. And I looked at the hostess and I said, I thought you told me that nobody was waiting to meet anyone. And she looked at me and she said, there is no way in God's green earth that I put the two of you together <laughs> for breakfast. Well, for a long time, I thought that God put me in John's life to help him, to give him new life. After all, he was the drug addict. He was the one who had a life that was a train wreck. But in the end, God has given me a great gift in John. And my friendship with him has given me new life. And in the end, our unexpected and uncommon friendship is transforming the kingdom of God. You remember Try Transformational? That's what's happened in my life, in John's life. When we walk into the intersection of need and compassion, when we walk into the lives of people like John and John into me, it transforms them, it transforms us, and it transforms the kingdom of God. And so we're going to do something tonight. I'm going to invite you to do something that we don't usually do. There's a card in your seat that looks like this. I want you to grab one of those. On one side is a place to put your name, phone number, and email. And on the other side are five different initiatives that our church is currently involved in serving, the least of these. Foster care, the refugees in Clarkston, the unborn, human trafficking, and prison ministry. And what I'm going to ask you to do as the band comes forward to play and our prayer team comes forward is to just spend some time in prayer and say, God, where do you want me to serve? And if you check one or more of those boxes, I will personally reach out to you this week and give you the information of a meeting that will be purely informational because I'm not asking you to go and serve in a prison yet. I'm not asking you to go foster a child yet. I'm not asking you to give a million dollars to make this part of our 10-year vision a reality yet. But God might be. And so I just ask that you would take the time to pray. And as you leave today, if you will leave this card with part of the Dream Team members, they'll be at the door as you leave, just drop it in. And my commitment to you is that I will personally reach out to you and let you know when we are coming together to talk more about each of these five initiatives. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you 
I, I just thank you that we're part of a church that actually cares about the least of these. I thank you that we are a church that is willing to go deep and wide in the lives of the broken and the hurting and the vulnerable and the marginalized and the people that the rest of the world has forgotten about or simply doesn't care about. I thank you that you have convicted us to be people like Jesus who care for the least of these and are willing to do something about it. And Father, I pray that you would convict us as a church, that you would speak into our hearts and say, Bill, I want you to serve in prison ministry. Mary, I want you to serve with the unborn. Larry, I want you to foster a child. Whatever it is, Father, that you would reach into the lives and just touch the hearts of the people gathered here tonight and say, I need you to serve the people that Jesus called the least of these. And I pray that I and the people here tonight would have the courage and the obedience to do that. In the beautiful name of Jesus, I pray. And the people of God said, Amen.